Will you pray with me? <clears throat> Heavenly God, we approach you with hearts full of different kinds of heaviness, lives full of different kinds of burdens, whether we feel like we can't breathe physically because of the AQI numbers, the particulates in the, in the, in the air around us, or whether because of just the, the suffocating realities of other things going on in our life. As I approached this week and saw that the passage for us to listen to was the Ten Commandments, I, you know, Lord, I was not excited. I couldn't figure out at first, what on earth do we need to hear in this time of our world from the Ten Commandments? And I give you thanks that um, you opened up a window for me to understand what needs to be heard today. And I pray that your voice would be heard, your gracious, loving, restorative voice in our lives today and for our church would be heard so that we might walk closer to you, we might know you, and we might understand our place in this world as people of faith. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, friends, we walk around and we just we just have to admit that our context in history and in the world gives us nothing other than a default view of God. And that's a domesticated God, a domesticated deity who has been defanged and declawed and neutered to the point where we have for ourselves most of the time a smiling, soft grandpa in the clouds who had never, or really who knows better than to ever ask us to do something that we've already decided we don't want to do. We don't even realize the ways in which you and I, and I put myself out there with all of you, that I can't even articulate all the ways, I can't even see clearly all the ways that I embody and live with this idea of God. And so it can be jolting, super troubling, when, when we're confronted with the wild God of the Bible. Not the domesticated God we would prefer, but the wild God of the Bible, who no one, no one tells this God how to behave, and no one is able to tame this God. And C.S. Lewis in his Chronicles of Narnia regularly comes back to this phrase, Aslan is not a tame lion. Well, today is one of those days where we come into contact with that wildness, and it comes as we approach the Ten Commandments. And of course, up goes our guard as we hear the Ten Commandments read to us. Here again we have the scorecard God, who's needling into the nitpick, nitpicky parts of our lives. For some reason, he's obsessed with micromanaging all the things that bring us fun. <laughs> and he's getting into our private lives. Well, set aside that for a second. I know that's part of what we bring to the table. But set that aside because even more shocking in this passage, if we really want to hear it, 
even more shocking is the display of God's utter wildness in Exodus 20. It's really bookending Exodus 20. You know, as I, whenever I was taught, whenever I'm looking at a passage of scripture, always kind of see the context, always look at the beginning and end, especially if I don't know what to do with a passage or if a passage is overly familiar. Make sure you understand what's going on in this literature. And so as I looked at this passage, and as you would, you would see this, that your eyes would settle on what happens before and after. And in chapter 19, verse 12, in the lead up to this big experience of the Ten Commandments, God is concerned and talks about putting limits. He says in chapter 19, verse 12, put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful and do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. And then he says in, he talks about people who touching it being put to death and he says in 19 chapter 1924 he says don't let these people touch the mountain or lest i will break out against them this is the wildness of god being portrayed and then after the encounter that they have of the 10 commandments this is what the people say when they saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear and they stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have this God speak to us anymore or we will die. And so in the beginning of the story, God is concerned that his wildness will break out. And in the end, the people are concerned that his wildness will break out. And they've had an encounter and an experience with his wildness. Today, you know, we can't imagine a positive reason for this wildness of God. We just, it just doesn't connect. And we say, how could this be positive? But the Israelites, you know, the Israelites, they're not really concerned with our shallow view of what was going on for them. The Israelites absolutely needed, it was absolutely crucial for them in their world that God would be wild. That the fear, this, this fear-inducing wildness of God was sorely needed amidst a world of warlike peoples who promised at every turn to come at them with their dishonesty, their treaty breaking, their killing, their pillaging, their raping, their kidnapping. And the Israelites knew absolutely that their most likely future as a wandering group, unprotected, vulnerable group of people, they knew in the front of their minds was that they were absolutely vulnerable for the next warlike tribe and its oppressive leader to take them and make them into slaves once again. Easy pickings in their world to be just grabbed hold of and turned into slaves again and oppressed. You know, a smiling grandpa in the clouds was absolutely useless for these Israelites on their journey. In a dangerous world, the Israelites need a wild God to fight and to protect and to keep the warlike peoples at bay. And so we see God showing in this passage 
his it really it's two parts he shows his wildness first of all that will protect them from the evil outside but then he shows them the ten commandments as a gift to protect them from the evil inside the Ten Commandments become this gracious gift to keep the Israelites themselves from turning into one of those warlike peoples who would then have to face the wild justice of God. In other words, we have in this passage a wild and gracious God who protects us from the violent world around and the violent world within. And we have to look at one other really just incredible part of this story. Again, this is in the chapter before, the part we didn't read. In verse 5 of chapter 19, where this fascinating thing is said by God. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What an amazing, can you just stop and, and realize amidst all the wildness and all the commandments, the beauty of what God is saying to these people, you will be my treasured possession. It still speaks volumes to us today to consider this. You will be my treasured possession. This is like a groom speaking to his bride. Well, it's lovely and it's great and it's true, but it's not just that God wants to turn them into his cozy little protected bubble from the outside world because did you hear that other phrase that was mentioned? You will be a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests. And by using that language and saying that these people are going to be like a priesthood, it can only mean one thing, is that God doesn't just have them in mind. Here, you're a special people. Everyone else is blah, blah, blah. Who cares about them? You're protected. You're my chosen people. No, because what priests do is they intercede and they stand between and they mediate. Well, who are these treasured people? Who are they going to mediate to? Unbelievably. The plan here is that they will be priests to usher the warlike world into God's covenant. So already in view here is the whole global warlike peace-hating world being drawn somehow, maybe through these people and their upholding of their side of the covenant. Maybe they can act as priests. What an expansive vision God is showing here. I know it's a lot to process, and so we'll wrap up here in a minute. But we have to just make a little turn here at the end and say, you know, the Israelites couldn't attain that role, finally, as the priests, as the covenant holders who are consecrated enough to be the priests to the broken world. It turns out God had a bigger plan in place already that you and I would eventually be made into today, along with the global church of the last 2,000 years, that we would be made into this kingdom of priests. And the New Testament church, we eventually came up with this phrase for the, how to talk about this, that we are the priesthood of all believers. 
but we can't achieve this priesthood ourselves. It had to be achieved on our behalf from the outside. And this happens in the New Testament when two contradictory paradoxical realities come together in one place, and that's on the cross. Two contradictory paradoxical things, we call this the gospel. It always has contradictions and paradoxes in it, that at the same time, Israel's covenant is being fully obeyed, Jesus embodying the obedience Israel couldn't embody, and at the same time, bearing the cost of the warlike people's disobedience to the covenant. At, the, at once, obeying it, and at the same time, paying the cost of its disobedience, and that happens on the cross. Over the years, pastors, uh, we get sometimes exhausted and we, we just get tired of over and over having to deal with America's obsession. And what am I talking about? America's theological obsession with heaven or hell. It's this sort of unbiblical, constant obsession unique to American religion. And when I come across, I come across it so often, I think it's just so at the forefront of everyone's mind and all of a sudden I'm talking to someone and I realize oh yeah once again what they're concerned about here is this obsession of heaven or hell and I think God wants us with this passage and many others to set that aside a minute not to completely write it off but to set it aside and actually listen to how the scriptures are engaging us that although God is wild consistently in the Bible this God is trying to find a way to keep his wild justice from breaking out on us. And this God will do almost anything to help it be that what lands on us is his gracious protection instead of his wild justice breaking out among us. That's what the Bible is about. That's what the Ten Commandments are about. A wild God who wants his gracious protection to win out in the end for you, for me, and from our peace-hating neighbors. Can you sit with that as your view of God this week? Can you adopt that as your view of God? A God who has wildness and has gracious protection and wants his gracious protection to win out at all costs. And that'll mean his son on the cross for you. Can you wake up to that every morning and the assurance of knowing and being in the presence of that kind of God? So if, and if we do, what? Then the Ten Commandments don't matter, right? We can dispense of those. Nope. The Ten Commandments then exist as they're supposed to from the beginning. They exist as our as the gift to us to be able to react and respond in gratitude for the rescue that God has provided for us. They provide us a roadmap of gratitude and they're still a part of our lives. So let's take a moment. I'm going to try to share screen here and see if, if you can just see for a minute the questions to ponder and have a minute of reflection you can write one of these questions down if it strikes you well and take it with you this week. 
Let's take a minute with these questions. Can you guys see that? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly God, may these words that come from you, the ones we've heard today, may we know that they're from you and that you love us dearly, that you're longing to be in a covenant relationship with us where we're securely in your loving embrace as your treasured possession through Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.